Recently, I was driving to the church from my home in Norman. I was coming up Interstate 35 when I came up on a pickup, and there was something about this pickup I noticed. There was something on the tailgate. I wasn't quite sure what it was, and as I got closer, I realized that it was a a whole bunch of bumper stickers. I mean, they covered the whole tailgate, you know? I couldn't really read them, but I could count them, and there was 11. And I thought, this guy really wants us to know what he thinks. It's too bad I can't read them. I didn't have my glasses on. As I pulled out to pass this gentleman, as I started to go around the side, I looked at the side of his pickup, and there was at least three times as many bumper stickers on the side of his car. I just kind of waved as I went by. You know... I've had bumper stickers on my car before, too. Usually they're associated with some school that one of my kids is going to. But there's nothing wrong with bumper stickers. But let me tell you, I think there's a problem that we sometimes have in our country. And that is taking difficult subjects, complicated issues, and reducing them to a bumper sticker slogan. You know, there's a lot of really hard issues that we have to deal with in our country. And they don't always translate very well to a bumper sticker. But they're easy, right? And so we stick them on our cars and our trucks and everything. It's almost the same thing with our theology. Sometimes we take difficult issues in theology and we want to reduce them to a bumper sticker as well. And that's why we've been doing this sermon series the last few weeks. We've been taking some of these sayings that might fit on a bumper sticker, some of which have some truth to them, but they're not completely theologically correct. And the most of them, they're all not in the Bible. And so we've been looking at these kinds of statements and trying to figure out what we can make of them. You know, if there could be bumper stickers with theological sayings on there, there might be things like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Or, this horrific act was a part of God's plan. Those are some of the sort of things we've been talking about recently. And why they're not always theologically sound, and that they definitely are not in the Bible. I have to tell you, theology is not always easy. When I went to seminary many, many years ago, I remember my first few weeks. I remember all the books that I had to read, and I didn't understand the concepts. I didn't know the language, the vocabulary. I mean, I didn't know what pseudepigraphal was. I'm still not sure I I know what it is. I didn't know what eschatological was, and I didn't know who this Christology was. I mean, who was that? Christology. That didn't really happen. Or they actually might have kicked me out early if I had said that. But theology was hard. You know, and what I really wished I had was one of those easy buttons. You know, the ones you see in the, uh, the office supply commercials where you, you press it and it makes everything easy. That's what I wanted my theology to be. I wanted it to be black and white and easy so that I could understand it. But you know what? It just wasn't that way. You know, I think God wants us to think deeply about what we believe. He wants us to work at it and try to figure out what it's all about. So today, 
what we're talking about. The topic is not so much a saying, but it's a major concept within our theology, and it has to do with God's will for our lives. What is it, and what can we make of it? And how do we sometimes misunderstand it? And there's three things that I want to say about all this. First of all, I want to talk about what is God's will for our life and what isn't. And then I want to talk about how do we find God's will for our life. And finally, once we think we found it, then what do we do with it? And how do we apply it to our lives and to this world? First of all, what is God's will for our life and what isn't God's will for our lives? And let me begin with the latter, if I may. What isn't God's will? At least what I think. My wife, Kelly, who sings in the choir, said I could share this story with you. She really did. Many years ago, when Kelly was married to her late husband, Mark, early on in their marriage, they wanted children. They wanted a child. And for eight years, they tried to have a child. I mean, Kelly could get pregnant, but she could never get to term. And after eight years and several miscarriages, they finally said, let's adopt. Three more years passed. Three more years passed. But at the end of that time, they were able to adopt a little baby girl named Brenna. And she was the joy of their lives. And Kelly remembers a story She remembers a a, a co-worker that she worked with, someone who, she says, I have no doubt that she had good intentions in what she was saying to me. But she came up to me one day at work, and we were talking about this new baby, Brenna, this new bundle of joy, this new blessing. And she said, you know what? When I think about God's will for your life, Kelly, she said, I think maybe God never intended for you to have a biological child. I think God wanted you to be Brenna's mama. And Kelly thought about that. And she said, I'm not sure I can buy into that, that it was God's will that we have all of these miscarriages and go through all of this heartache. I just can't see that that's God's will. You know, on the road in life, there's going to be a lot of heartaches. And we can grow from that and we can learn from it. But I don't believe that God puts a semi-truck coming straight at us for a head-on collision. It may happen, but I don't believe that God does that. And so I think some things are definitely not God's will for our life. Sometimes when we think about God's will for our life, I think we think of it like a jigsaw puzzle. Any of you like to do jigsaw puzzles? You know those kind that have thousands of pieces? You, you set up a card table and you put all the pieces out on them and you work on them for weeks and weeks and weeks trying to put all these pieces together. I never had the patience for any of that. But I know some people love to do it. And sometimes I think some people think that God's will is like one of those jigsaw puzzles. Except in this particular puzzle, God has already picked out all the pieces, and there's only one certain number. It's not 998, 997, it's 999 pieces, and they have to fit together just this way. Now, the only problem with that is, you know, when you're doing a jigsaw puzzle, sometimes you lose a piece or two or three or four you know, and you're working on that puzzle, and, and here's this little picture of these birds over here, and, and this one bird doesn't have a head. 
And you're thinking, I know this bird's supposed to have a head, but there's no peace. And so you keep looking for that piece, and you're thinking it's in here somewhere. And finally, after a few weeks, you kind of figure out that the cat probably got on the card table and knocked off all these pieces, and they've been under the sofa for three weeks, and you didn't know it. And it drives you crazy. And life is kind of like that when it comes to God's will. You know, life is always changing. Life is, is fluid. We make decisions, and we get sent off in a whole different direction. Or someone else makes a decision, and it disrupts our life. And sometimes things happen, and we don't know who to blame or who to look for or what to say. But I can tell you this. I don't believe that God has puppets. You've heard this before. That he doesn't put strings on us and pull the strings and make us do exactly according to what God's plan is. I don't think that's how it really works. I believe that we are free to make our decisions, that we are to think about our decisions and use our free will. And then when we decide what we think we're going to do, then we check in with God and we say, God, here's what I have in mind. What do you think? And I think God, like many parents, gives us a lot of leeway, a lot of rope to hang ourselves with those decisions. I think that's what we're supposed to do. David Platt writes in a book called Follow Me. He says that God's ultimate concern is not so much about getting us from point A to point B. He says God's ultimate concern is that we know him deeply and trust him completely. In other words, all the day-to-day things that happen in our life, all the big decisions, God cares about those. But God is saying, here's what the deal is. If you trust me, if you know me, then everything flows from that. Everything flows from that. You know, the church has been grappling with this for a long time, trying to figure out what is God's will for our life, what is our purpose in life. You know, and and sometimes they've done it through what's called catechism. Some of you have perhaps been through catechism at another church. A catechism is a method for teaching new Christian converts theology. What do we believe? And the Catholics took the first whack at it many, many years ago. And in their catechism, they said the purpose of life is to know God and to love and serve him and be happy with him forever. That's the purpose of life. If you're a Roman Catholic, you understand that catechism. Now, centuries later, the reformers in the church, who later became the Presbyterians, they would come together and they would put together their own catechism. It was called the Westminster Catechism. And they said the purpose of life was to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Are you hearing some similarities? Know God, glorify God, love God, and serve God. That's the purpose of life. And then Paul would chime in with these words from Romans that you heard today. And he would say that in addition to loving God, we are to love our neighbors as well. The only obligation we have is to love one another. So when we think about what God's will for our life is, it's all going to flow from this. Glorify God, love God, serve him, and love your neighbor, even the ones you don't know, even the ones you don't care for. Everything flows from that. So how can we know that we're doing that? How can we know that we are using that criteria to figure out what we're supposed to be doing in our lives so that we know? Proverbs says, 
Trust in God. Lean not on your own understanding. Seek his will in all that you do, and he will make your paths straight. But sometimes, you know, my paths don't feel very straight. I don't know about you, you know, but sometimes I feel like I'm just kind of going like this. And I'm going, God, am I on the right track? Am I going the right direction? Is this it? You know, it shouldn't be this hard. You know, finding God's will for our life should not be like this spiritual pin the tail on the donkey. You know, where we're going, God, am I getting warm? Is this it? Is this it? Am I cold? Am I warm? But that's what we do sometimes, right? We just don't seem to know. But I think Paul gives us some clues today in the scripture when he says, don't be conformed to the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then you can discern what the will of God is in your life through the renewing of your mind. Chapter 11, where we started with the scripture today, really begins the practical teaching in this book of Romans. It's a wonderful book. Paul writes, it's almost like a systematic theology. And then he says, and this is what we do with it now. This is how you you put it into action. And he's been saying, he says, we're supposed to turn away, to turn away from our old life and to embrace Christ. Or my my good Baptist friends would say, repent, repent, and embrace Christ. And, you know, repent actually means to turn around, to turn away, to go to a new way of life. In fact, actually, the Greek word for repent actually means to change your mind or your way of thinking. To change your mind, our way of thinking. So we renew our minds, I think, through Scripture, by studying God's Word. If you want to know what God has in mind for you, go to the Scripture. Now here's where I need to ask you to bear with me. As I say, while we interrupt this sermon for a word from one of our sponsors, and that would be Disciple Bible Study. You know, we have a lot of great Bible studies here at St. Luke's. We have great Bible studies on Wednesday nights. Some of them happen right in this room. We have uh, some great Sunday school classes where we talk about the Bible. We have lots of other Bible studies, too, that meet at different times. But Disciple Bible Study is the one that I know the best because I've been teaching it for over 20 years. And I believe that Disciple One is one of the best foundational studies that you can take to learn about the Bible, to find those insights into your life, and to renew your mind. So what I want to say to you during this time is that when we start to register for Disciple Bible Study in another month or so, if you've never taken a Bible study, if you've never taken Disciple Bible Study, I hope you'll consider signing up. We have some great teachers. The Reverend Phil Greenwald is one of them. The Reverend Keith King is another one. Some terrific teachers. I promise you, if you take the time and invest yourself in studying God's scriptures, it'll make a difference in your life. There'll be new insights that you've never seen before. You know, almost 30 years ago, when I felt that God was kind of tugging at my heart and saying, I think you need to go into the ordained ministry, and I kept saying, what? (laughs) You know, are you kidding me? I was really struggling with that because I thought, surely there must be somebody else, you know, that could do this. But I decided... I decided to sign up for Disciple Bible Study. I thought I would see if God really had anything to say to me in this book. And you know, as we, 
as we begin to study some of these great stories that I had heard before, that you've heard before, they begin to speak to me in a new way. For someone who was really struggling that I was, that God was really calling me, we'd look at the story of Moses. You know, God calls Moses to go to the Pharaoh, but Moses is the man of excuses. He says, not me, Lord, not me. There must be somebody else. You know, I'm not a good speaker. I don't have all the answers. I don't even know your name. And God says, I'll take care of it. Just go. And then, of course, there's Peter. You know, Peter, he's the rock, right, on which Jesus says, I will build my church on this rock. And yet it is Peter that denies Jesus three times. And as I heard these stories in Scripture, I mean, they just, they just hit me between the eyes. I thought, wow, if these people can be used for God's glory, to further the the needs of the kingdom, then maybe God can even use me. I promise you, if you take time to invest in Scripture, you'll find out more about your life than you've ever found out before. Okay. So how do we know? How do we know? After we look at Scripture, how else can we know how to find out what Scripture or what God's will is for our life? And I found this in James. I was looking. James 1 says, if you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him. That's what he says. Ask him, and he'll tell you. You know, but we don't like to ask, do we? We don't like to ask for help, for guidance, you know? We don't like to admit when we're confused about which way we're going in life. And, you know, there's the old stereotype about men. We really don't like to admit that we're lost and to stop and ask for direction. We just don't like that. But I think that's a part of what this is. We have to be willing to say, okay, God, I'm not really sure which way I'm supposed to go. Can you tell me something? But it's not enough just to ask. You have to believe that God's really going to answer you. James goes on to say, When you ask him, be sure that you really expect him to tell you. For a doubtful mind will be as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. How many times have you asked God for guidance, but you didn't really believe he was going to tell you something? I know I have. Ask God and believe. Okay. So once we think we got a handle on God's will for our life, what are we going to do with it? What are we going to do? How are we going to apply it to our lives and to this crazy world that we live in? You know, and I think it comes down to the fact that every day is going to be different. And we're supposed to respond to what we see. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen the day after that. But God has something in store for us in some way in which we can go out and glorify God and to love our neighbor. There'll be something that we can do. Last night I was watching uh, the movie Sully. Have you ever seen that? I'd seen it before. You know, it's the story, the real-life story of a U.S. Airways jet. About eight years ago, it took off on a cold January day from LaGuardia in New York. And on takeoff, there was a bird strike. It took out both the engines. And the pilot, who was Captain Chesley Sullenberger, said, we got to go back to the airport. We can't go on. we got to turn back. But they couldn't make it. They couldn't make it. It's called Miracle on the Hudson. The air traffic controller's saying, Teterboro's open, the runway's here, go on, you can go. And he says, we're not going to make it, we're going in the Hudson. And they went down, and it's amazing. They made it. The plane didn't break up. 
All these passengers were able to get out. But what was also more amazing was how people responded. All of these guys that were, you know, that were driving these ferry boats on the river, they got into their boats, they sailed out there to pick up these people off the wings of the plane. Some of them were in the water. When they got back to shore, there was hundreds of New York firefighters and policemen and medical personnel and Red Cross people, all sorts of people who had come to help that day. Now, I don't know what they're motivation was. I don't know what their religious persuasion was. But when somebody said to Sully, they said, you know, you're the hero. You saved all those people. And he said, no, I didn't do it alone. I had a co-pilot. There was air traffic controllers. There was all of those rescuers. And I think what he was saying was, you know, we respond When we see something, we know we have to act. And we go out and we do our best to love our neighbors, people we may not even know. We go out to serve God because we love God and we want to serve him. And so we go out to help these people in our lives. So I don't know what tomorrow's going to bring, but I think it's a day-by-day thing. And who knows what's going to happen. We know in this town what it's like to be called to serve in the midst of horrible tragedy, don't we? We know what that's about. Well... This is Patriotic Sunday. And on this 4th of July, as we celebrate the blessings of liberty, I want to say something about this. 241 years of a country. And we have gone through all kinds of things in this country. You know, some wonderful, some not so wonderful. It's been an amazing thing. But, you know, we live in a really interesting time. It's, and it's something that really wears on me all the time. It's something that's it's heavy on my heart about how polarized we have become in this country. And I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But, you know, the way we attack the character of other people, the names that we call them, we call them names on the airwaves, on the Internet, on Facebook, people we don't know, people we do know, and some people we say, you're not really an American because you don't feel this way or that. And it comes from both sides. And the level just keeps getting turned up, you know, the fever pitch of the things that are being said. And we are leaders. We pelt them with insults, and sometimes they respond back. And this has been going on for a long time. You know, it didn't just start yesterday. It just seems like it's a lot worse. You know, you can go back just in this century to the beginning of this century when George Bush was elected president. You know, it was a disputed election, and it didn't take long for people to start being unhappy with him and to call him names. They said he has one of the lowest IQs of any president. He never would have gotten to an Ivy League school if it hadn't been for his father. He's a drunk. You know, he had a drinking problem at one point that he admitted. They said he can't put together a coherent sentence. And Kanye West even said, George Bush doesn't like black people. Bush said that was the one that really hurt the most. But you know, to his credit, he hardly ever responded. And then we got a black person as president after that. And boy, it just kept ratcheting up the criticism. It just kept coming for those eight years, and it's still going on. I saw a story the other day about the Obamas that was criticizing them for all the vacations they've been taking ever since uh, he left office. And there was a picture with this story of them whitewater rafting, and they had their, uh, their life jackets on. And I was reading the comments, which you should never do, trust me. Because they just got nastier and nastier. And once again, this happens on both sides. But then I came to this one, and it said, well, they're wearing their life jackets. That just goes to show you that gorillas and monkeys can't swim. 
And I know you're thinking, this doesn't represent any large number of people. I don't think it does. This doesn't get said a lot. But I have to tell you, if I hadn't seen a comment like that once, I saw it a hundred times in the last eight years, probably because I read too many of these kinds of things. And you know, if even if it just represents one-tenth of one percent of America, that's just too much. That's just too much. And then we come to today. Well, unless you've been living in a cave, you know how the rhetoric's been turned up even higher you know, since President Trump came into office, you know, and, the, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And so when I read this scripture from Paul today, it, uh, it definitely caught my eye when he said, be subject to the governing authorities and pay what is due, taxes, and give respect and honor where it is due. That's one maybe we need to read more often. You know, because I really believe that we should respect our people who try to lead us in office. At whatever level they are, from whatever party they're from, whatever viewpoint, we should respect them. We should pray for them. We should pray that God guides them in all that they do. Paul says, we're not to conform to the world. And you know what the world says, don't you? The world says, pick a side. Pick a side, because there's plenty of them out there. Pick a side, defend it to your last breath, and always, always get even. That's what the world tells us to do. And you know, I don't know about you, but sometimes I fall into that. I fall into that. Yeah, let's get even. You know, and you can write on these blogs, and if it's anonymous, you can say anything you want, and nobody knows that you said it. And those are some of the nastiest comments there are. Paul knows something about criticism. You know, in every town he went, with all these churches that he started, in every town he went to, he was criticized. Not only was he criticized, he was thrown in jail, he was beaten, he was one day, he was stoned and left at the city gates for dead. Now, Paul was one of those people that, at time to time, he lashed out at his detractors. He did. But I think it's interesting. Here in Romans, which is written at the end of his life, at the end of his career, what does he say at this point? What does he say? Well, he talks about sin. And he says, you know, I'm the worst offender. I'm the worst offender. He says, I hate what I do. And I cannot seem to do what I know is right. Is that not the human condition? I hate what I do. I cannot seem to do what I know is right. I didn't mean to say that, but I did. It came out of my mouth. I said it. I didn't mean it, but I said it, and I'll probably say it again. That's what Paul says about himself. Instead of getting even, he says, don't conform to the world. Don't conform. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You owe nothing to anyone but to love others. On this 4th of July, as we celebrate the blessings of liberty, consider what God wants you to do with your life. Will you go along with what the world says we should do? To spew hate? To get even? Or will you consider what it means to glorify God 
and to love your neighbor, even the ones you don't agree with? Will you pray for our leaders and hope that God guides them in all that they do? I really believe that we need new eyes to see on this 4th of July weekend. I think we need a new vision. And I'll tell you, I know something about that. Because I just recently had eye surgery, and I'm having trouble seeing, I have to tell you. And I've been going to see my eye doctor a lot. And every week when I would go in to see him, I noticed he had a sign uh, out in the hallway on the wall. And one day I took a picture of it so I could remember it. And here's what it says. Always pray to have eyes that see the best in people. Always have eyes to pray. Pray that you have eyes to see the best in people. A heart that forgives the worst. A mind that forgets the bad. And a soul that never loses faith in God. Carolyn sang earlier an American anthem. And she said, she sang, What will our legacy be? What will we say to our children? Will you give your best for America? Will you give your best for God? It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer as God has been speaking to you today.